Good afternoon and welcome. I'd like to get things started. Uh, my name is Michael Sony. I am the director of the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies here at Harvard, and I'll be uh, the chair of today's event with our esteemed speaker and our discussants. The occasion for uh, today's event is the publication in 2017 of a provocatively titled book, Destined for War, Can America and China Escape Thucydides' Trap? There are some promotional materials for the book uh, in the table at the back of the room. Uh, the author of the book is here beside me, Professor Graham Allison, who is Douglas Dillon Professor of Government at Harvard's Kennedy School, uh, where he served as founding dean uh, of the modern Kennedy School and subsequently led the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs from 1995 until last year. Like several colleagues uh, at the Kennedy School, uh, but also at the Fairbanks Center, Professor Allison's experience spans both the academy and public service. He was Assistant Secretary of Defense under the Clinton administration. His research on nuclear weapons and terrorism was recognized by the Defense Department's highest civilian award, the Defense Medal for Distinguished Public Service, for reshaping relations with Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan to reduce the former Soviet nuclear arsenal. Professor Allison's 2017 book, uh, garnered a lot of attention, and I assume that's why so many of you are here today. It was a national bestseller, a New York Times editor's choice book. It also attracted a certain amount of controversy, and I hope that we'll see at least some of that controversy in the discussion today. Uh, the book is named for the chronicler of the Peloponnesian War of the 5th century BCE. Thucydides argued famously that the cause of that war lay in the fear that a rising Athens generated in the ruling part in the ruling uh, power Sparta. Allison uses Professor Allison uses the term Thucydides' trap to describe the risk, the heightened risk, the heightened danger of conflict when a rising power challenges an established hegemon. It's a situation with obvious parallels to the US-China relationship today. And one might say that a lot of the controversy over the book has to do with the degree to which the parallel is well-founded. At a certain level, uh, I hope I won't offend you when I say that the core idea of the book uh, sounds like common sense, that uh, a rising power is a threat in some ways to the power of an established power. What makes the book more compelling, as those of you who have read it or will read it will know, is the argument that it does not make war inevitable between the two powers, and therefore, Professor Allison suggests ways in which imaginative statecraft might allow an escape from the city's trap, uh, make it possible for America and China to escape repeating history. Uh, President Allison will make uh, introductory remarks about his book, and that will be followed by comments from two uh, outstanding scholars of China, who I'll introduce now to get the introductions out of the way. Uh, and then that'll be followed by uh, a moderated discussion among the four of us, and then I'll open the floor up for questions. Uh, let me introduce, first of all, uh, Oriana Schuyler Mastro, Assistant Professor of Security Studies at the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. She's also an officer in the United States Air Force Reserve, for which she works as a political military affairs strategist. 
Her research focuses on the intersection of interstate conflict, in particular military strategy and operations, with great power relations and the challenges of rising powers with a focus on East Asia. She holds a BA in East Asian Studies from Stanford and an MA and PhD in Politics from Princeton. Her forthcoming book from Cornell University Press is called The Costs of Conversation, Obstacle, Obstacles to Talks in Wartime. Rod McFarker is Leroy B. Williams Professor of History and Political Science Emeritus uh, at Harvard and also a former director of the Fairbanks Center. His many publications, I will mention only a few, include The Politics of China, two volumes of the Cambridge History of China, which were co-edited with the late John King Fairbank, uh, The Politics of China, the, Era of Mao and the Eras of Mao and Deng, and his well-known trilogy, The Origins of the Cultural Revolution. His most recent jointly authored book on the Cultural Revolution, Mao's Last Revolution, was published by the Belknap Press of Harvard in 2006. He was the founding editor of one of the leading journals uh, in the field of China studies, the China Quarterly. And in, a pre in previous lifetimes, that would be a lot, but in previous lifetimes, he's also been a journalist, uh, a TV commentator, and a member of parliament in the United Kingdom. Uh, today's event is co-sponsored uh, by the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies and the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation uh, at the Kennedy School. I want to thank our partners at the Kennedy School for joining with us. I want to thank Professor Allison for the long walk up from Harvard Square. I want to say just one word about that cooperation. Um, a long time ago, about 10 years ago, I had a briefing with the uh, chair of the National Intelligence, Ca the National Intelligence Council, uh, uh, who was Thomas Finger at the time. And one of the questions that came up in that briefing was uh, one of the jobs of the National Intelligence Council is to coordinate the more than 12 separate intelligence agencies in the US government. And so the question arose, how do you deal with this problem of stovepiping? stovepiping of different intelligence agencies. And, and Mr. Finger responded, you have to understand that in Washington, we don't call them stovepipes. We call them vertical cylinders of excellence. <laughs> and it turns out that at Harvard, we have a lot of vertical cylinders of excellence, a surprising number of vertical cylinders of excellence. Part of the Fairbanks Center's role, I think, is to break down those vertical cylinders of excellence and to bring different parts of the university in communication with one another. So I'm especially pleased to be uh, hosting an event that uh, involves the collaboration of the two centers and that brings uh, uh, an important scholar of China at Harvard to our center for the sharing of views and ideas. Uh, please join me then now in uh, welcoming all three of today's speakers for an invigorating discussion on an important topic. So thank you very much, Michael, for uh, such a generous introduction. And thank all of you for coming out this afternoon uh, for a conversation. Uh, and let me second entirely your aspiration that the components of the universities, whether they're actually, they're certainly vertical and they're certainly cylindric. And perhaps at Harvard, 
Uh, at Harvard, everything is excellent, okay? Uh, we all know a little bit better than that. But uh, in any case, the idea that we should be breaking down uh, barriers and finding ways to collaborate is exactly right. And I want to say thank you to everybody associated with the Fairbank Center, of which I've been a beneficiary since I showed up at Harvard about a half century ago. So I actually was an undergraduate at Harvard and took a course from John Fairbank and Ed Reischauer that was known colloquially as rice patties. Uh, and uh, neither Fairbank nor Reischauer could have imagined what became Japan or China uh, in you know the, the years ahead. Uh, when I was a kid in North Carolina, uh, my mother would always say, you know, eat all the food on your plate because there are many starving Chinese. Uh, and uh, uh, now there are lots of fat Chinese, <laughs> just like fat Americans. Uh, so things have changed quite a lot. Also, the colleagues here at the Fairbank Center are an extraordinary group of people from whom have been my professors, my colleagues, my friends, from whom I continue learning. So I'm especially glad to see Ezra and Rod and many others here today. Uh, I also want to do a shout out for a book uh, here that Michael is the uh, editor of, uh, The 36 Questions, and the essays in it, uh, many of whom are by colleagues whom I know, like uh, Ezra and Rod and Arnie, and, uh, and I think there are a number of great questions and uh, uh, good answers. The shout out I would give, the, the, I mean the prize I would give, was to somebody I had never heard of before the book who, lo and behold, turns out to be an assistant professor here at Harvard, whom I still haven't met, but I sent him a note after the book. This uh, name, Yuhan uh, Wang. And if you haven't read his essay called, Can the Chinese Communist Party Learn from Chinese Emperors? You've got a good read. It's a good read of thoughtful argument, interesting in the use of data about the emperors uh, to provide a base for trying to think about uh, the current emperor. So I think all very interesting. Uh, and I especially applaud, Michael, your introduction proposition in which you say, quote, the key message from the book uh, about the past is that history matters, about the present, that complexity matters, and about the future, that China's challenge matters. So I would say that that's actually uh, a pretty good summary of what I try to do in my book. So what I'm going to do is uh, take about 25 minutes to take you through. I'll start with three bottom lines to give you a sense of topics that, that we may want to get to, and which I'll try to cover, but which I don't, we can cover in the conversation. And then I will uh, try to excite you about the argument in the book, and then I'm going to end with a pretty provocative question. So three bottom lines. On the tariff tiff that threatens now to become a trade war, even though today, if you read the papers, there may be a little bit of a lull, uh, my bet is that uh, it's going to get worse before it gets worse. <laughs> so secondly, uh, on the most dangerous route to war, between the US and China, or what has been the most dangerous route, namely events on the North Korean, on the Korean Peninsula, I'm uncharacteristically uh, 
uh, optimistic. So uh, I had an essay in yesterday's Politico that explains why. But I think the path we're now on is the worst possible path except for all the other feasible alternatives. And third, I was in Beijing just uh, three weeks ago for five days for the China Development Forum, which is a gathering of business leaders mostly, but some politicos involved, and had a chance while there to talk directly and more importantly listen to all the leaders uh, below the emperor. Uh, so uh, everybody else, uh, including some whom I've known for a long time. Uh, and uh, when uh, the fellow who was the National Security Advisor and is a good colleague and friend of mine, H.R. McMaster, asked when I kept back, well, so what's your takeaway? I gave him a report of various sorts, but I said my main takeaway was that if Thucydides were watching, he would say, all the actors are right on script, moving uh, seemingly inexorably towards what may become the grandest collision in history. It's almost as if uh, Xi Jinping and Trump are competing to see who could best epitomize the role of the leader of the rising power or the ruling power. And since the party Congress, Xi's uh, uh, confidence, uh, his uh, uh, growing ambitions, his assertiveness, even arrogance, would at some points, I think, make Pericles uh, uncomfortable. Uh, and uh, uh, Trump, as a leader of a Washington that is frustrated and anxious, uh, sounds a lot like the fear that inspired in Sparta. So I'm not encouraged on that front. So what I'll do today is three things. First, I want to introduce you, or I hope for most of you, reintroduce you to a great thinker. I'm going to present a big idea, and I'm going to pose a most consequential question. So, the great thinker is Thucydides. And particularly for our Chinese uh, students or others here, there's generally a problem pronouncing this fellow's name. <laughs> <laughs> so, in unison, on three, we're going to say one, two, three, Thucydides. One more time. One, two, three, Thucydides. One more time. Thucydides. So if nothing else, you can text your mother, father, son, a friend. I met today a great thinker, and his name is Thucydides. And in China, actually, Thucydides is now a rage because for Xi Jinping and for his closest colleague, Wang Fishan, the idea that there was somebody who lived 2,500 years ago, about the time of Confucius, whom they had never heard of, and who had identified a pattern in history 
that has had a recurring, uh, uh, or that has recurred, is fascinating. And Xi Jinping talks about Thucydides' trap all the time. When I was in Beijing in December, I was scheduled to come home, and they asked if I could stay an extra day to see Wan Kishan, who spent an hour and a half pursuing Thucydides. So he'd been reading about Thucydides, thinking about Thucydides, as have many others. And Xi Jinping has said, and I agree completely, the challenge now is how to escape Thucydides' trap. So that's the right, the right thing. So that's the great thinker. The big idea is called Thucydides' trap. So just to be clear, as I think Michael said, this is a little bit obvious as you think of it, but of course obvious because we're standing on the shoulders of somebody who already pointed it out about 2,500 years ago. So Thucydides captured this idea that when a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power, in general, poop happens. Okay? So famously, he wrote, it was the rise of Athens and the fear that this instilled in Sparta that made the war inevitable. So in general, when a rising power like Athens or Germany, 100 plus years ago, or China in the past generation, threatens to displace a ruling power like Sparta, or Britain, or the US, the outcome is not good. And the third uh, point, or the third issue or question, is the question, the subtitle of the book, Can America and China Escape Thucydides' Trap? And I would say, stay tuned. Now first, I want to make a comment about this trap. I find it difficult because I even don't know how to pr pronounce its name. <laughs> you know, the Thucydian trap that people talk about. The so-called Thucydides trap. The Thucydides trap. Thucydides trap. The Thucydides trap. Thucydides trap. The Thucydides trap. So this concept has entered the policy bloodstream fairly quickly. Here, the last summit between Xi Jinping and President Obama, where they're debating Thucydides' trap. Initially, the question of whether this is, quote, inevitable. Actually, if you read carefully in the original Thucydides' language, by inevitable, he did not mean 100%. He meant likely, very likely, and he was trying to put the point provocatively. So in both cases, I believe they're correct in arguing that the task is escaping Thucydides' trap. And here's the emperor in Davos in 2017, when the international community crowned him to his surprise and that of the people that work for him, the leader of the liberal international rule-based order uh, talking about why the problem is to escape Thucydides' trap. So, uh, 
So that's the big picture. Let me drill down a little bit further. So uh, three questions again. Question one, what has been the biggest geopolitical event of the past generation, the past 25 years? And second question, what will be the biggest geostrategic challenge for the next 25 years, or as far as we can see? And the third question, this same old subtitle, can the US and China escape Thucydides' trap? So probably here at the Fairbank Center, <coughs> I don't need to tell you <coughs> that the biggest geopolitical event in the last 25 years is the rise of China. Never before has a country risen so far, so fast, on so many different dimensions. And if you haven't been watching the first chapter of my book, actually twice to, in 20 pages, give you a jolt. This illustrates the point. This bridge I can see out of my window at the Kennedy School. Goes across the Charles River between the Kennedy School and the, and the Business School. The renovation of it, the discussion began when I was dean of the Kennedy School. And I quit being dean in 1989. Okay. The project began in earnest in 2012, a two-year project. In 2014, they said it's not finished. It's gonna take another year. In 2015, they said, it's not finished. It's going to take another year, and it's three times over budget. In 2016, they said, we're not going to tell you when it's going to be finished. <laughs> Actually, today, the traffic is flowing. They haven't done all the little final items. In Beijing, some of you are familiar with the Sanyan Bridge. It's got about twice the number of traffic lanes as the Anderson Bridge here at Harvard. In 2016, uh, the Chinese decided they wanted to renovate Sanyan Bridge. How long did it take to complete the project? Take a guess. Three days. Three days? <laughs> okay. Another guess. Other. How about 43 hours? 43 hours. Go to YouTube. You can put in Sanyan Bridge. And you will see the traffic is flowing 43 hours later. And when I was in Beijing recently, I drove across it. It works fine. <laughs> so I actually proposed to the vice mayor of Beijing that if the folks that did this would finish off the Anderson Bridge, I would make a small contribution. <laughs> <laughs> OK, in my course, uh, I give students a quiz. This is unfair, because some of you may take my course next year. But in any case, I give a short version of it in the book. So in the, in the quiz, I have now 53 indicators. These are only a selection. And the question is, when could China become number one? So students have to fill in the right-hand column in the quiz. So they guess 2030, 2040, not in my lifetime. Uh, then I show them another slide. It's called already. So all these things already happened. So China already has the most billionaires. Already has the largest middle class. Already is the largest trading nation. Already has the fastest supercomputers. 
already has the largest economy in the world. Let me say it again. Has the largest economy in the world measured by the yardstick that both the IMF and the CIA believe is the best yardstick for comparing national economies, namely purchasing parity. I have a discussion of that in the book. So when will China become number one? Well, in many domains already. So the second question, the geopolitical event looking forward. My answer is the impact of the rise of China on the US and the international order that the US has been the supervisor of in the period since World War II. Seven decades that not accidentally were decades without great power war. So in 2014, I was testifying for the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, where the ranking Democrat, Jack Reed, was a former student at the Kennedy School, a person I've known for a long time. And he asked if I would help provide a big picture for the debate about the Obama administration's major initiative in Asia, which was called the what? Remember? What was the name of it? The pivot, okay, the pivot, or sometimes it was called the rebalance. So it was a debate about that. So I gave him, and he said, Graham, but you have to remember it should be simple uh, because you're talking to senators. That's okay. So I gave him 10 pages that I thought were brilliant and very simple and straight. And he said, no, this is not good. Uh, it needs to be also short. Okay? So then I spent a whole weekend, and I cut it down to three pages, which I thought would get me a pass. And he called up again, and he said, you still don't get it. Okay? It needs to be simpler. Okay? So I made a cartoon. <laughs> and this, this cartoon I started my, my, my presentation with. So I compare US and China to two kids in a playground on opposite ends of a seesaw. And the size of each of them is their relative GDP. So in 2004, China is about 20% the US size. And then lo and behold, in 2014, it's as big as we are. And in 2024 on, this, uh, on these uh, paths, it'll be half again bigger. So the pivot was what? It was a debate that said the US had made a mistake putting so much of its weight and attention on its left foot in the Middle East. So we should lighten up there to put more weight on our right foot in Asia, where the future is. But what we didn't notice was that while this debate was going on, the seesaw just kept moving to the point that neither foot was on the ground. So the impact of the rise of China is hard to exaggerate. <clears throat> For Americans who've been accustomed to being at the top of every pecking order, the idea that somebody is challenging us is unacceptable and surprising and uncomfortable and frustrating and all of the above. Uh, particularly for red-blooded Americans, and maybe even worse for red-necked Americans like me. I come from North Carolina. We believe USA means number one. Okay? My wife says if the 
cosmetics on my chest were washed off and would have a tattoo that would say, USA is number one. I think that's who we are. Okay? Uh, I think that's the way it should be. I think actually it has been very good that way. I've given this speech many times, and I think it's true, that Asia has never had a period of such peace and prosperity, and that the, in, the miracles that have occurred in Asia have been enabled by the order that the U.S. has maintained in Asia in the period after World War II. But uh, Chinese colleagues would say, even if I grant you that, that was then, and now is now. So thank you very much. The tide that brought you is receding, and you should go with it. And I think this challenge of a rising power, as it challenges the position of a ruling power, will be the dominant question for us going forward. And I think the outcome of this exercise will remain unclear. This shows up in particular in the region where China has become the dominant trading partner of everybody. And I have a good description in the book of uh, Lee Kuan Yew's account of this, in which he says, in the 21st century, he expects the economic balance of power to be more relevant than the military balance of power. So as all of the Asian countries say to Americans, don't force us to choose between our economic relationship with China, which makes us rich, and our security relationship with you, which makes us safe. But this is going to get a harder and harder uh, but going to become harder and harder. You can see this in the South China Sea. The committee meets today to consider the nomination of General James Mattis to be the Secretary of Defense of the United States. I thank uh, both Senator Nunn and Senator Cohen for being here. He's probably the only one uh, here at this table who can hear the words Thucydides trap and not have to go to Wikipedia. Of course, Secretary Cohen has insulted every member of this committee by suggesting that we don't readily understand that. Uh, we're going to have to manage that uh, competition between us and China. Uh, there's another uh, piece of wisdom from antiquity that says fear, honor, and interest always seem to be the root causes of why a nation chooses to go to hostilities. So Secretary Mattis, who's a big fan of Thucydides and a big reader of, of books, including Thucydides, gave you a line which also comes from Thucydides, why the nations go to war? Thucydides says, think of three factors. Interests, fear, and honor. Honor meaning their respect. Good, good framework. Actually, Thucydides has about a hundred good ideas. Maybe a thousand, but at least a hundred. So in, the, at the, in each chapter of my book, I start with an epigraph from Thucydides, just to remind you, and again for you, especially students, I would say you have a great opportunity. Go on the web and you can download Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War for free. Just download book one, the first hundred pages. And if every other page doesn't knock your socks off, you have a problem. Yep. 
So this man has a lot of big, interesting ideas, and the history of the Peloponnesian War is a great book full of them. Okay. So finally, a word on Korea, and then I'm going to stop. So this is Mary Lago, the meeting in April of last year between uh, Trump and Xi, where Trump said to Xi Jinping, North Korea is the big issue. Either you're going to help me solve this problem or I'm going to solve it. Uh, and if I solve it, you're not going to like it. Well, right now, there's a little, I would say, a glimmer of hope. Maybe more than a glimmer of hope. I can even see the outline of a, sorry, of a deal uh, that could, or an agreement that could be reached at the summit between Xi, uh, sorry, between uh, Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un uh, that would declare uh, that uh, in time, North Korea is going to denuclearize, or you're going to have a denuclearized Korean peninsula, and you're going to have a relaxation of the threats or elimination of the threats, and then you're going to have some normalization of relations, and then maybe a peace treaty, since there's no peace treaty to end World War, to the, the, there's no peace treaty to end the Korean War yet, and then maybe even in the far distant future, the reunification of, uh, of Korea. Do I think this is going to happen quickly? No. But if all that were achieved was an agreement that put us on a path to negotiations that went on for a long time, that's not a good outcome, but it's better than every alternative feasible outcome at this point. So what this was about and what I think it remains about, particularly if the talks or if the agreement fails, is Kim Jong-un was conducting a set of ICBM tests that would, with the next set of tests, give him a credible capability to conduct nuclear strikes against California, against San Francisco or Los Angeles. Trump has determined that this will never happen it certainly never happened while he's president. And that if the only way to prevent him from doing that is to attack him, he will. So if we don't have some form of agreement and a long negotiating process, we're going to go back to Kim and his tests or Trump and his attack. And each of those outcomes, I think, is substantially worse than the path that we're on, which is not a great path, but just happens to be the worst except for the other feasible alternatives. So to conclude, big, great thinker, Thucydides, I, I, how to pronounce his name, big idea, Thucydides trap, this dangerous dynamic, and the question about whether the US and China can escape Thucydides trap, I would simply say the jury is out, and if we are to do so, it's going to require imagination substantially beyond any conversation that's now going on. Imagination about what Americans could do and what Chinese could do. So what I've been about in this past year since the book's published is looking for people to think about ideas and looking for ideas, trying to think of ideas myself. I have not had many good ideas yet. And 
I'm pretty familiar with the conventional wisdom in Washington, and I don't think that makes it. And in Beijing, and I don't think that makes it. Actually, at Harvard, at least among the people I know, I've been listening and I haven't heard yet. I think it's a fantastic opportunity, especially for younger scholars and for people outside the conversation so far, to say, well, I think I can think of something pretty radical. And the fact that in the first blush it sounds radical or even sounds a bit crazy or sounds unacceptable is no reason, I think, for taking it off the table for debate. If you imagine just a to, uh, to, uh, to stretch your imagination. If you imagine in 1947, June, so a year and a half after World War II, George Marshall came to Harvard and gave a commencement speech. And he said, I have a good idea. Americans who are exhausted after the war and have been demobilizing and have come home and think that they're gonna build America now should tax themselves and pay one and a half percent per year of GDP and take the money and send it to Europeans, including Germans, who were just killing them. People did not say, that's a great idea, okay? They said, that's crazy. This makes no sense. Nobody's gonna do this, this is not feasible. But it was a great idea, as it turned out, it turned out to be a crucial idea. So I think we need some crazy ideas, and I'm hoping maybe from the commentators, they'll stretch our minds. So, thank you. Thank you very much, Graham, for those st stimulating remarks. I, uh, I actually have taught rice patties a couple of times. It still exists. Uh, and uh, uh, the, uh, one of the things that actually I find encouraging is that probably 80% of the Euro-American college students in the class are in rice patties because they think their future lies either in China or in some kind of relationship with China. And that actually, I think, is quite encouraging quite encouraging for our possibility of, of escaping uh, the Thucydides I, trap. I didn't know the course is still being yeah, taught. It's, it's still around. And I'll tell you, it's pretty intimidating. It's a good grade. To, 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 to uh, stand up and teach a course that Fairbanks started in 1947 or whenever it was. Um, so our commentators I've already introduced. You've been charged with coming up with crazy ideas. Let's start with you, Professor Mastro. Well, I guess that's a, a good place to start. Um, I obviously have I've read the book and I've also kept track of uh, some of the comments or, or criticisms of the book. And what I think I'm going to present to you is a different type of viewpoint, which is that I actually think this problem is harder than Professor Allison um, has posited to us, and I think there are actually fewer solutions than he's posited to us. So while I know there's been a bit of backlash about, um, you know, we don't want to think about war with China, uh, I'm going to talk a bit about war with China. And one of the sort of ideas, as Professor Allison said, you know, all ideas are on the table. One thing that I don't see on the table uh, to be discussed is war with China as being a potentially good idea. Um, so I'm gonna talk a bit about that viewpoint, specifically this idea about um, what I understand to be the central question or the policy question of the book, which is how to escape this trap. 
But as someone focused on this, obviously from a biased U.S. perspective, I think this is asking the wrong question. While war is costly, it's often necessary. And the question um, is not so much how to avoid war. The real question is when I looked at the cases throughout the book, I kind of did my own coding of things, and I saw that in over half the cases in the book, the rising power succeeded in overcoming the ruling power, whether this was through war or through peace. In the other half of those cases, the rising power failed in the end, but it had accumulated enough power to stand a fighting chance. So for me, one of the real puzzles is how do we ever get to this position of parity in which over and over and over again, the rising power at least manages to get to a point where they're not completely outmatched by the great power. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot about that question. That is um, a central question of a book I'm working on right now. Um, but I will say that when I looked at the cases in the book, I went back and forth on my interpretation of them. I was... Uh, a bit confused about whether or not war was irrational uh, or due to a misunderstanding, undesirable and avoidable, or whether even in retrospect, those countries would say, this was a good idea, and I'm glad that I did that. And so when I looked through the appendix, I sort of starred the winner um, and saw that in most cases, given what was happening, given what those countries were pursuing, and given the outcome, that even the loser probably was accurately assessing their likelihood of victory and what the costs would be of failure and what the benefits would be of winning. And in those conditions, it doesn't seem so much like a trap, something that countries can and should avoid, um, but more this assessment of uh, whether or not a country can maintain its power by other means. So the U.S. Great Britain case is often used in D.C., and, and I think used in the book, uh, to come up with clues about how we can avoid conflict. But I don't know anyone, at least in the defense community in D.C., who would find it a win for power to transition peacefully to China and would probably be willing to risk war to prevent that from happening. So while we debate these types of mechanisms, um, whether it's rational or it's not rational, whether it's really about hubris of rising powers or the paranoia of declining powers, when I actually looked at the data in a lot of the cases, and I have to admit, and I'll get more to the China uh, substance in a minute, I'm, not, I'm an expert on China, I'm not an expert on these other cases, but I would be curious to hear what Professor Allison has to say about my assessment of reading through a lot of those cases. It seemed like War was warranted in those situations, in most of them. There's only a few in which it seemed unnecessary, maybe in Spain versus Portugal, because in the end they fought these long wars, but no one came out on top. Or other ones, maybe it seemed like a rising power didn't really have an option, like Japan, even though they lost in the end. Um, it was between their ability to continue to rise economically and spread their influence or not. Um, and so it's unclear to me what the mechanisms and variables are that actually make it a trap. Which leads to the China-specific stuff. So I know um, that the statement made in the book that the probability of war is higher than most assume is considered a very controversial statement. It is not a controversial statement in Washington, D.C. The idea that there's a possibility for war between China and the United States is something, um, at least in the defense community, is very much a possibility and is something that the United States military prepares for and has prepared for for decades. The question here is how, you know, there's this chapter in the book about the Thucydides trap, and then about how we get from here to war. 
And I read this chapter with great interest because uh, while I think uh, it is very possible for the United States and China to find themselves in war, I wasn't clear about what the Thucydides trap had to do with a lot of these mechanisms. They seemed like they were posited as background conditions, but is it that they would increase the likelihood of war? Is it that it leads to a higher level of violence or more costs? So for example, one of the triggers was um, a change in political status of Taiwan. Now in my mind, while we have this rise of China and it's a great challenge today, the United States had been pre preparing for potential contingencies and so has China dealing with Taiwan decades back. So what is the role of the Thucydides trap really in that? And I would also just like to point out an interesting fact about a lot of these roads to war. One of the arguments being made is that you can have an accidental collision or some inconsequential or small event that could spiral into a major conflict that no country uh, wants. I teach a course on the Chinese military at Georgetown and I have a whole week just on um, Chinese thinking of use of force. And one of the things I'd like to point out, whether we agree with it or not, is that China thinks about these types of things very differently than we do. Specifically, China doesn't believe in inadvertent escalation. This idea that states find themselves in a war that they don't want to fight doesn't make any sense from the Chinese perspective. That doesn't mean that some sort of accident would not um, end in a war, but it wouldn't be accidental. The way I like to posit it is, I would imagine if there was some sort of collision at sea, for example, Xi Jinping and Zhou Nanhai would gather his advisors and he would ask them two questions. The first, do you think we're gonna have to fight a war with the United States at some point in the future? If the answer to that is yes, the next question is, is now a favorable time to do so? And if the answer to that is yes, then technically it's true that some sort of accident or collision has led to a major war between those two countries, but I don't see it as, as a spark that um, leads these countries to be in a position that they don't wanna be in. Now, this might be confusing for many people from the outside who don't spend as much time reading Chinese military doctrine because China now has adopted this language. And they've adopted this language of inadvertent escalation because they know it works to get the United States to back down. In our dialogues, in our mill-to-mills, it's often the case that China says things like, you know, if we keep on operating in the South China Sea, we could have an accident that leads to war. The greatest way to avoid this is for you not to be here, right? So, so I don't think they really believe it, but it's something that they use. These are just narratives. No, they, it's just, Oriana, this is a footnote. Uh, the uh, a PLA Navy guy whom I know says, uh, asked me, this was uh, when I was there in December, he said, you know, you keep talking about this inadvertent collision of two ships. What's the chance of a collision between a Chinese ship, a Chinese warship, and an American ship in the Caribbean? He said, it was zero. <laughs> <laughs> this is easy, easy to solve this problem. Right. So this is done purposefully, right? So there's a difference between inadvertent escalation and purposeful escalation, and what China does a lot is on purpose, right? And so, um, I, so whether those are accelerants, which is like are, are, you know argued in the book, um, I was a bit. Um, I think these are things that would exist without the Thucydides trap, so I was trying to figure out how those mix. And I would just say things like cyber counterspace and many of the war games I've been a part of actually have the opposite effect of an accelerant because nobody dies. So um, in some cases, those could actually lead to less 
um, escalation than if a country had pursued another means. So when I look at those, the different aspects in that chapter of how we could get to war, I think of those more as characteristics of conflict today or what we call the road to war in a lot of war games, just like painting a picture of how we could, how we could get there. But I'm not sure how the rising ruling power dynamic um, fits into this. The um, the next point I want to say is that I think this is worse than Professor Allison has posited to you today. He's very optimistic, actually, about a lot of these dynamics. There's a chapter in the book that talks about the clues from past cases and, and what we could learn from history to help us avoid war with China. Going through these, I think, 12 clues, I found that most of them are not applicable to China. For example, meshing, uh, like how we meshed Germany into international institutions in the 1990s is not really applicable because Germany didn't have military power or cultural similarities like US Great Britain. We don't really have cultural similarities with, with China. Or he, even higher authorities. I would put the Pope in a different category than the UN. The UN doesn't really have that type of authority. Or there are certain things that I wish we could do, um, but we actually only know how to do them after the fact, like distinguish between needs and wants. Or when he posits that timing is crucial, I couldn't agree more, but I can't figure out what the right timing is until after we have failed to figure it out. Also, there are a couple on nuclear weapons, and I would just posit, and this is very controversial, I think part of it, if, if I'm so bold to say, is generational, um, but the view on nuclear weapons is not the same, not only in the US-China relationship, compared to US-Russia, um, but how I think a lot of policymakers in my generation think about nuclear weapons today, in that they don't play as critical of a role. China holds them for defensive purposes. I think we could fight a major war with China without going nuclear. I don't think we could have risked the same war with the Soviet Union. So in some mindsets of people in the United States, it's this idea that we would fight a war is, is so horrendous because of the destruction of a nuclear war, but I don't think China has the same sort of, China's not going to use nuclear weapons against the United States um, unless the United States uses them first, which I hope we would not. So what can be done uh, to conclude? Professor Ellison says we shouldn't keep what we're doing. I agree. We need new options. But those new options, I think, don't include the rehashing of old ones. And some of the options presented, um, I think, are high-risk, little reward. Accommodation, maybe if we no longer consider primacy a goal. But that accommodation would have to be conceded sphere of influence, like we did to the Soviet Union. Giving China Taiwan is not enough. It's not a China, Taiwan for South China Sea issue. You'd have to give them the South China Sea and East China Sea because China sees that as critical to their ability to, to maintain their own security. And then we still suffer from this credible commitment problem of not knowing what China is like, meaning that if we concede this sphere of influence, China might pose a greater threat. And then we find ourselves in a war that's harder to win and at a higher level of violence than we'd fight otherwise. The second thing he suggests is try to undermine the rise of China, potentially by, and, and not to say that he promotes these ideas, but just ideas that we should consider. Promoting the independence of Tibet or Taiwan or Xinjiang. Unfortunately, I don't think that even if that worked, that would undermine China's rise. And to me, that's the clearest path to war. You threaten China's internal security, we 100% find ourselves at, a, at major war with China. So this is high risk, low reward. You can negotiate a long peace. He mentioned that we did this, we did this. That in the case of Sparta and Athens, they did this, but look how that turned out for them. They ended also in a major war after that peace. Uh, and during the Cold War, the, the thing we negotiated with China, I mean, China wasn't really a contender at that time. So in this question, I would say, is time on China's side or the US side? 
And I think it's on China's side. Uh, so negotiating a long piece maybe just delays this problem uh, for a couple of generations when the United States is in a worse situation. So we need to redefine the relationship. I agree with that. Um, I just met with some Chinese embassy officials on Tuesday, and they asked me, they're very frustrated because the image of China in DC right now is very bad. And so they asked me, you know, why is everyone so mad at China lately? And I tried to lay it out for them. But one of the things I posited was whether people realize it or not, there's been this belief that cooperation in certain areas, like they were positing this book, like uh, global terrorism, would create some goodwill that would then spill over and help us solve more contentious issues. Now, I've been advising the government for a very long time that this is not how China thinks. And this Chinese embassy official, when I said, when this didn't happen, when this spillover didn't happen, a lot of people were very frustrated. And he replied, but that's not how China thinks about these things. We don't link them that way. Which I said, of course, I know that. But that's not how a lot of people in the United States saw it. So even if we could get cooperation to redefine the issue on nuclear issues, global terrorism, or, or climate change, um, I don't think this really is going to have much of an impact on the strategic competition China and the United States is currently facing. So in sum, I think the goal is even harder than avoiding war. It's maintaining the U.S. position in the face of a rising China, which is hard to do in wartime or in peacetime. Rising powers have succeeded peacefully or through war over half the time to topple the ruling power. The clues to peace that are presented, many are not applicable to China, and we have limited, or we have limited control over them, or we can't put together actionable policy recommendations now, and some of the alternative options won't work. So while the United States can learn from history, it finds itself in a situation never experienced before. A rising power that is primarily accumulating and exercising political and economic power for now within an institutionalized and integrated system such that the world has never seen, facing a hegemon more constrained than previous ones in its use of force in a region that is also rising on the whole. So I don't have any good answers for how to deal with that, uh, but I definitely commend the idea that we need even bolder and newer thinking than any of the options we have considered before. With that, I will conclude. Thank you. Good. First rule of agitprop, stand up. <laughs> um, I think that uh, Graham has put before us a very well-articulated version of his study. And I think instinctively, there are things which we recognize. Everyone recognizes the idea of the uh, schoolyard bully, the alpha male, who makes sure that until he graduates, no one else challenges him there. So that's just something you learn very easily in your growing up. Uh, and people have been writing about clashes like this, potential clashes, even since Thucydides. One, two, three, Thucydides. Um, he, of course, is the great intellectual behind this idea. But I have to tell you, and I'm sure Graham is well aware of this, that critics of his book have indicated that the leading historians of Greece, ancient Greece, uh, argue that Thucydides was actually making a false case to justify Athens, because Athens was not really a rising power. It already had an empire, and it wanted to 
just make sure that Sparta didn't disturb its empire. So that one phrase which is lifted and which is the key to his book is true, but it's Thucydides' version of history, which has deceived a lot of people. But we've had this discussion. We've had uh, Sam Huntington's clash of civilizations that's prepared us for this. I wrote uh, an article myself many years ago called the Post-Confucian Challenge, which dealt more with the economy than with military, but it had the same idea. And before World War II, in the late 30s, an English intellectual called Olaf Stapledon wrote a book called Last and First Men, which was not about beam me up, Scotty, or anything like that. It was not about Star Wars. It was about the history of mankind as it goes through the millennia ahead of us. And um, an early stage of this book, a critical point, was the clash between China and America. And if you want to know how that turns out, you'll have to go to Amazon and get the book. Say the, say the book again. Last and First Men. Now, um, I think that the, uh, the real optimistic version of uh, this problem which Graham has rightly put before us, because it is a big, big issue in Washington, as we've just heard. Uh, but the really optimistic version of this is this, that over the past five years, as we all know, Xi Jinping has accumulated all the power that he needs to be the single most powerful ruler since Mao Zedong. He has more titles than Mao Zedong ever bothered with. The one thing he does not have is the unquestioned legitimacy which Mao had as the revolutionary leader. But he achieves the power by the strength of his hold over the party, which he's now uh, terrorized with the anti-corruption campaign, because as all the last few Chinese leaders have said, corruption is a massive problem in the Chinese party. And he has managed to get rid of many opponents as a result of that policy. So he is the number one. He has a few chosen advisors, Wang Qishan and others. But he is the number one. And what that makes him is into China's Stalin, China's second great leader after the founding father. And what we know about Stalin, unlike Lenin, he never took risks. He knew that he had killed so many people. He had angered so many institutions that if he took a real major risk and failed, he could be out. That's why when World War II broke out in, uh, with, between Germany and Russia, when Germany invaded, an invasion which he had poo-pooed when he was warned of it by the British, that it was coming, uh, Stalin disappeared for several days. I suspect he was frightened of what might happen to someone who had allowed this massive German attack to take place and not to be prepared for it. I think that enormous power, the kind that Xi Jinping has acquired, 
But again, let me emphasize, without that final revolutionary legitimacy that Mao had, encourages one not to take risks. And what I mean by not taking risks is that if you're in the South China Sea, you do not want there to be a clash. I would say that there are likely to be clashes, but they won't lead to war. But you don't even want there to be a clash because you don't know what will happen if the general public, who adore you at the moment because of your anti-corruption campaign, feels you've let the, the country down, you've allowed it to be defeated, to be humiliated, and that can't be allowed. So you do not want any situation to take place, whether it's with Japan, the East China Sea, with America and the South China Sea, or whatever, in which it can be seen that China has been humiliated in front of a foreign power. So I think that one of the greatest safeguards is that at least on the China side at the moment, I won't say the same for the American side, on the China side at the moment, we have a leader who does not want to take risks, does not believe in the art of the deal, uh, and will not do something that could have bad consequences if he can help it. <clears throat> the grandmaster's uh, uh, to think outside the box. Well, I tried to do that in a New York Times article not so long ago. But um, I referred in it to Tom Clancy. And unfortunately, editors of the New York Times took out the Tom Clancy reference. So it wasn't quite clear that I didn't totally believe in what I was saying. <laughs> what I argued was that there's a very simple way to solve the, what was then, what may not be any longer, the North Korean problem. But it would involve a degree of trust between the United States and China, which did not prevail. What it would need would be for the Chinese and the Americans to agree that the North Korean regime was too dangerous to both of them, and that the North, they would agree that it had to be dismantled, and that the Chinese would do that with the North Korean leadership, and the China, Americans would do it with the nucleus. There's a more detail which I won't go into. It isn't quite as crude as I've just outlined it. Uh, but this would not take place. It would have enormously good results for the Chinese. Why? Because the Korean Peninsula could be united under one Korea, the southern government, which would be friendly to China. The American troops would no longer need to be in the Korean Peninsula, something which the Chinese have wanted out for decades, and, and Korea could be, if Koreans would ever allow themselves to be, which they won't, could be seen as a sort of client state of their big neighbor. But that was not going to happen. It could have happened very easily just about two weeks ago. Kim Jong-un was in Beijing. He could have been kept in Beijing, and that would have been that. <laughs> But no one listened to me. Anyway, I think that the, um, my main point is not that, that Graham has put before us a false problem. 
it's a genuine problem. The Thucydides part may not be totally what Thucydides was saying, but it's a genuine problem. And I think that uh, what he said about the least best way of going forward is probably right, a decent Korean Peninsula. Um, and, uh, but I think that our best hope is that we will have an American president who is as risk averse as the Chinese leader. I hope that will happen soon. The, um, this, I can't help but wonder whether uh, the death of Stalin, the recent film, is being viewed in Zhongnanhai and what the response, response would be. I hope there's, uh, if there is any Chinese media in the room, uh, those of us who, who speak about China in English are, are used to being misquoted. I just want to be very clear, Professor McFarker did not advocate the kidnapping of Kim Jong-un. <laughs> and we'll be very unhappy if that's reported tomorrow uh, in Chinese language media. Great, great. Professor Alison, well, he, did, he didn't say the kidnapping, he just said extend his visit. Extend his visit indefinitely, <laughs> indeed. Uh, do you want to respond to uh, well, I, I mean, if I took time to respond to all the items, we probably wouldn't get to any questions. Let me say, both set of comments I uh, think were great and actually were what I, I mean, more than I hoped for in terms of engaging the argument and trying to begin stretching us. I think uh, Rod and I had talked before about his idea on Korea, which I thought was quite interesting, though I hadn't thought of the Kim Jong-un component of it. <laughs> I think that the uh, a, a reasonable uh, analysis of the interests of both China and the U.S. would discover, just as his argument, as his article pointed out, that they share more interests here and, and, and face greater threats here than the differences between them over the details. So uh, this should have led, I, I thought, uh, she to become more active in this domain mm -hmm. and I had in fact uh, offered my two cents on this topic for some time saying if I were uh, advising somebody in the Chinese government I would say you have a great opportunity here in fact they came late to the party as I explained in this piece that I mentioned in Politico uh, because they were afraid of getting left out uh, because Trump then went off on his own uh, but actually, I think Mr. Moon gets the biggest prize in this space so far. But the game is not over, and we're going to see how it plays out. On Ariana, I, I again, I ask for big ideas. Uh, fight them now, uh, uh, because they're going to be bigger and stronger later. There's a big idea. Okay? <laughs> uh, and it's slightly different than the ones I have. Uh, uh, since... Uh, and I maybe I mean I, I will think about this because I think it's worth it's worth engaging as an argument. Uh, uh, in the absence of fighting them at some point, in the current trajectories, China will become half again bigger than the U.S. and then twice as sides of the, U of the U.S. As Martin Wolf's recent piece in the FT points out, if Chinese should only become as productive as Portuguese, which is not the highest standard in the world, 
if they should only become that productive, they'll have a GDP twice the size of the U.S. And if they have a GDP twice the size of the U.S., soon they'll have a military that's bigger than the U.S. Well, so if you can't live in that world, then you have to consider alternatives. I think I can, or at least I can wish and hope that we could find a way to live even in a world like that, if that's the world that comes about. It's not my preferred world. But uh, because if you imagine on the seesaw that the Japanese and the South Koreans, or maybe after Rod, the South Koreans are off this, this uh, and the Australians, and then who knows, maybe at some point the Indians were on the other side of the seesaw, if you had a TPP with 40% of the world's GDP that China had to relate to as a different correlation of forces, you might see things evolve in a slightly different way. Because I think ultimately the relationship will reflect the underlying correlation of forces. And then we have to adjust them. Uh, because I, I, uh, if I felt totally confident that all one would have was a repeat of World War II, well, that was pretty bad, uh, uh, but it didn't include nuclear weapons except at the end for, uh, uh, I, and I do probably, uh, I think Ariana's point about being generationally marked, my understanding of nuclear weapons mainly comes from thinking about Russia and the Soviet Union and risks uh, in that context. And there's no question whatever that China has a distinctly different idea about nuclear weapons. So a non-nuclear war with China that only killed 50 million people, still, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, so if there's alternatives to that, you know, I'm for exploring them. Thanks very much, Graham. A, a, very, a very, very gracious reaction, because I think if I could sum up both our commentators' uh, uh, comments in, in one sentence each, one of our commentators said, you misread Thucydides. And the other commentator said, Thucydides doesn't matter. So for someone who wrote a book called The Thucydides Trap, that's a very gracious answer. Um, let, me, let me make one footnote on the, on the misreading of Thucydides. Again, uh, the wonderful thing about the interpretations is they get argued over and over. But uh, I think almost everybody agrees the best scholar in this generation of Thucydides is the uh, uh, Yale historian Don K. K uh, hey. Kagan. Kagan. And Kagan uh, believes that this is that Thucydides, this is what Thucydides said. Thucydides had it right and that this is the right interpretation of Thucydides. No, 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 he doesn't. Yes. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop I'm gonna I, stop the Greek Joe, history interpretation. Joe, no, no, wait, wait, wait just one more. <laughs> okay. So Joe Nye keeps saying this over and over, but this is false. If you called, and I, I'm happy to bet anybody here $1,000 who would like a bet, that we call up Don Kagan and ask him, and I, since I have talked to him, I have some inside information, that's what he says is his view. If you look at his last book on the subject, that's what he says is his view, and he says he hasn't changed his view. All right, we're going we're gonna to table the Peloponnesian War if you don't mind. Uh, because time is running short, I'm just going to ask one question, and I want to leave a couple of minutes for questions from, from, from the audience. Um, I want to flip the question, I want to flip the issue around a little bit. We've, for obvious reasons, been thinking about this from uh, the American perspective. The greatest beneficiary of the long peace in East Asia has been China. And that's a long peace that's been guaranteed by American uh, hegem hegemony, both economic 
and military. So, uh, Graham, you obviously are talking to leaders in the Chinese government. Uh, I suspect that the three of the rest of us are not. Uh, the uh, I talk to the military a lot. Do you? An official, but probably not in an advising capacity. <laughs> I do not. Yeah. That is true. Because that, that would be a problem. Yeah. yeah. On the record, I do not advise the Chinese <laughs> yes. military. Uh, so, on the record, I'm not an advisor to the Chinese government. Yeah, no, but they ask your advice, which is okay. In any case, ask, um, I offer my the, the, uh, it's probably much more. So whether we, whether it's the Thucydides trap or not, the deteriorating relationship between the U.S. and China is profoundly threatening to China. What should, what should China do? We talk a lot here about what the U.S. should do, um, uh, but Graham, you've asked for new ideas. What should the Chinese do to address this deteriorating situation, whether we call it the Thucydides trap or not? And it's got to be, yep. your, you, your answer's got to be realistic. Sure. So, <laughs> and short. <laughs> okay. So, uh, Michael, as you heard at the excellent event that you hosted this week, from ambassador, with Ambassador Sui. Uh, the Chinese have discovered and are now becoming alarmed by the fact that there's been a sea change in Washington uh, in its uh, posture towards China. So uh, the Trump administration is one uh, uh, edge of this, but actually across the whole security spectrum and the whole political spectrum. And the whole economic uh, spectrum. And whole economic spectrum. Uh, China, which was by all previous administrations regarded as a strategic partner or partner, if you say that in a Washington meeting today, people will hoot and holler. So it's uh, now a strategic rival or a strategic adversary or at the Defense Department, an enemy like the ones we uh, know and love to focus on. So uh, if you say that the strategy is to integrate, engage and integrate China into international institutions so they'll be domesticated and become more like us <laughs> instead of saying, excuse me, which, when did, where do you come from? Haven't you looked at the world? So the, the picture that the Chinese uh, government imagined that Americans had bought into about what was happening for the period since the opening, they recognize it's no longer realistic. So I think what they should be doing is sitting down with Americans and talking about the, the, a, a substantial reformulation of the character of the relationship. And I think it will require a significant reformulation of the of Can the they talk about it with this administration? <clears throat> There's a... It's a very good question, and I think that uh, uh, that's the the harder part of it, I suspect. I think that's the harder part. I think for sure uh, you could have a very serious conversation between Secretary Mattis and his counterpart, and in the military dimension, you could imagine what that's looked like. I think in the economic space, uh, I suspect that you could have a serious conversation that the Secretary of the Treasury would lead. They've been trying to trying to have that conversation. Well, but it would require it would require again thinking well I mean for for example, uh, uh, when uh, Lu He, who's the economic czar as you all know, uh, came into Washington three, four weeks ago, 
um, Mnookin, the Secretary of the Treasury, told him, you have to take a $100 billion cut in the bilateral trade deficit, which is $375 billion, this year. And the Chinese reaction was, that's impossible. Well, I have offered my views on this topic both to both governments. This is not impossible. It isn't even that hard. So I suggested three ways this can be done. So I would say that the, the easiest of which would simply be to buy $100 billion worth of Alaskan gas and Texas oil. Just put it on the account. There it is. So that's easy, okay? So don't say this is impossible. This is not impossible. I can think of impossible things. Those would be harder to do. But So I would say that, that, that we're in a period that I suspect two, three years from now, people will look back on this and say the whole character of the relationship was being renegotiated and reformulated over this period. And currently in Washington, I would say everything is in play. So one could say that the whole new era of great power relationships was an early attempt to do that with a more favorable administration, and it, it got nowhere. So I, I have a lot of ideas, but I'll try to keep them one economic, one political, one military. So the first thing is that China needs to develop a vision for why China being in charge is beneficial to anyone but China. They've failed to do that yet. Um, and that's why still the United States has a narrative about how and does allow for the so you know greater sovereignty of some other nations, like why it's good that the United States provides all these public goods. For China, um, they're not they need to be more sophisticated about their foreign policies. They're succeeding in a lot of areas, but it's very short term. So I was just in Djibouti and Ethiopia in December. And this is a kind of anecdotal example, but the United States base in Djibouti employs over 100 local Djiboutians, inserts $160 million into that local economy. The Chinese employ zero Djiboutians and insert basically no money into that economy. And then they're surprised why there's local resentment against them. If they're going to be a global power, they need to be more sophisticated in um, – presenting a vision to other countries that is beneficial. On the military side, I would tell them um, to say that they want to set aside this issue of uncloth and what freedom of navigation is, because the United States really doesn't care about the territorial issue in the South China Sea. The United States cares about its freedom for its military to maneuver. And so I would tell the Chinese government, just freeze this issue about who's allowed and not allowed to sail uh, in the EEZ. If you table this, then the United States, thinking that this is tabled, is going to be more supportive of bilateral, multilateral agreements to, to consolidate China's territorial gains. And when they have bilateral agreements with their neighbors, they can use other levers to ensure they get a beneficial agreement. And then once they've consolidated their control under law of those islands, then they can renege on the freezing and reinstate their interpretation that the US military can no longer operate there. Um, I would also say on the institutional side, China's been pretty good, actually, um, at thwarting threat perceptions. So one thing that I think about in my book is that the nature of power has changed drastically. You know, the United States, when it wanted to be a great power, didn't pursue colonies because Great Britain had colonies before it. Um, what we consider to be power has changed, and China's done a relatively good job at focusing on institutional and economic power in a way that makes it seem like they're not a threat. And the institutional side, they pursue three strategies. In some cases, they support 
uh, certain institutions, um, and then they can exploit those institutions to their benefit. In other areas, they build or add new institutions to the framework. And then in a very select few areas, they try to undermine existing institutions. So I never think it's useful to think about, are they remaking the world order? Are they challenging it? Actually, for the most part, they're building on the sidelines where order does not exist with certain parties, or there isn't a consensus about certain norms and principles. The most threatening is when they try to undermine things. The least threatening is when they exploit or support existing institutions. So I would tell them to focus at least in the short term on building their power through exploiting current institutions and less on undermining some that are not to their benefit. Um, and in terms of that focus, I would tell them while they think the time is right on the military side to push things, I've heard this from a lot of people in China, especially about the South China Sea this year, that they are going to move offensive systems onto those islands this year. They're not there yet. And by building up those military capacities, they're really sounding the alarm in Washington, D.C. So time is on their side. Continue to focus on building the economic power, the institutional power in the least threatening way. Um, continue to invest in their technologies and innovation so they can quickly change that into military power when need be. But hold off a little bit longer on making it so clear uh, that they're interested in those offensive capabilities. Yeah, I'm glad you're not their advisor. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing to do. I get some questions. Okay, we're actually we're actually at time now, but I think I'm going to go a little over time. We'll take a, but I suggest we we probably only have time for one round of questions. I suggest we take a couple of comments, quest, short comments, questions from the audience, and then we'll come back to the panel for last words and reflections on any or all of the questions. That seem seem reasonable. Okay, so we'll take. Uh, why don't we start in the back there? This question is for Ms. Mestro. Um, if you see a U.S. and China go to war, how do you envision the war plays out, and what is the military objective for the, for the U.S.? Uh, so, uh, very good question. So, why is America so skeptical? China is the leading hegemonic power. And I want to face that in the context of history. You know, we make it sound like this is a new development. For, for the thousand years before, you know, the 1800s, China was the leading economic military power. And as far as I can tell, or as far as I know, China never tried to colonize or had imperial ambitions. They sailed to Africa in 1400s, didn't do anything. So why are we so skeptical of a world where China regains that hegemonic power? Take these two, two questions here, and then this gentleman here. Thank you. Um, uh, 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 thank you for sorry, sorry. Thank you for your speech. And uh, you have talked about uh, the trap. Actually, I cannot pronounce the word uh, <laughs> in the country level and the world level. And I just want to share my words in my personal level. I'm from China, and uh, I'm a short-term visitor here. And back in China, I'm living in a, one of the biggest cities. That means my life is better than I think 80% of other people in the country. But even that, even me, I bought my car only three years ago. And uh, I think that happened in America 100 years ago, right? <clears throat> I think 100 years ago, most families in America have a car. And uh, my, my, uh, uh, my parents are still living in a rural village. And in the village, even now, the water, clean water supply is not 24 hours a day. <coughs> and uh, not all streets in the village are paved. <coughs> and I think uh, 
Um, the American, I have been here uh, for. Sorry, I, I don't mean to be rude. We've actually yeah. got a group of panelists who, okay, who are short. very familiar with the situation in China. Okay, let's, I'll be short. Let's move on to a question. Okay, I'll be short. My question is that I think everyone in this world, in every country, had the equal right to have a better life, as good as Americans. And I don't want my life, which is just getting better, to be ruined by a war. And I think all people in America, and I think I ask you sincerely, ask you to understand this and to tell your leaders to understand this. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, this gentleman here. And then, and then the oh, thank you. So, uh, Professor Allison, your um, argument saying China has been number one in many aspects reminds me of Professor Vogel's book, Japan as number one, many years ago. Uh, and um, <laughs> I see that Japan and U uh, US went through uh, competition, at least in economics. Um, for at least like 20 years or so, and there has been fierce competitions. Um, do you think there are any parallels uh, between the US-Japan competition uh, and the current US-China competition? Uh, and what do you think China and US can learn from that? Thank you. Thank you, I have a question for all of you. Uh, back to 1980s, there was a modernization theory predicting that when China reaches certain wealth level, democracy would be the natural outcome. Nowadays, many people would say China is even farther away from democracy than it was in 1980s. However, Professor Allison, you ask for big ideas. Do you still think, in theory, democratization of China could be a solution to the trap when Chinese political institution becomes more like that of South Korea or Japan? Would such transformation reduce or even eliminate the tension between China and US? Thank you. There's still so many hands, but I'm really sorry. We're going to have to cut it off. We'll take one last question from there, and then the gentleman in the corner there, uh, in, the, in the red. Yeah. Yeah, it's a nice talk. I appreciate it. <laughs> I think it's also controversial. So I just uh, first I want to comment. So since this analogy probably very, you know, resembles the Chinese saying, so just like a same mountain will accommodate two tigers not. In Chinese saying, okay? I think this very familiar, you know, saying in Chinese. I think according to the animal's rule, probably the war is inevitable, okay? Which tiger want to be dominate the mountain? However, According to the intelligent human's wisdom, do we have enough wisdom to resolve the issue with the two tigers equally or peacefully coexist in the same mountain? I think his irony is that we as American citizens, we know that we are all equal, okay? We can you know, we have the same rights. However, in dealing with the country issues, so we seem to always keep the animal's rules. So who is, is more dominant? Who will control the, you know, the mountain? So I just want to ask, you know, the panel's comments, what is the human's wisdom to resolve this issue? Thank you. Thank you. So it's actually a rather unfortunate analogy because the answer to whether is, are there enough goats to eat? <laughs> uh, the last question there. 
<laughs> yes, uh, thank you. Frequently one uh, hears Chinese leaders or intellectuals or writers uh, equating the post-war international norms as though uh, from a post-colonial uh, and formerly third world perspective, which is to equate them with those of the colonial masters and therefore is being uh, illegitimate. Uh, the alternative that seems to be proposed is a sphere of influence uh, and ever and in constantly expanding Chinese sphere of influence. Uh, I wonder what uh, each of you think are the prospects for China embracing the international norms, a specific example of the South China Sea and the right of international passage, uh, or uh, if it is simply incompatible with uh, the direction uh, China may evolve into uh, seeing an international order being. Thank you. Thank you. So let's, uh, a whole bunch of questions touching on, on uh, uh, zoology, ethics, uh, uh, geopolitics and so on. I'll let you speak to whichever ones you like. Why don't we go in reverse order, giving the last word to Professor Allenson. We'll start with Professor McFarker, Professor Mastro, and then Professor Allenson. Um, well, I'd like to address them all to a little bit. Um, China was hegemon for so long and was not doing anything of harm to anyone. I think that was the basic point. So why worry about Chinese hegemony? Well, I think I think that uh, Professor Johnson, uh, in his earliest book, uh, indicated that China waged more wars than other people, actually, during those imperial times. And there are parts of China which might uh, suggest that they um, were not quite as uh, non-hegemonic as the implication was. Um, but I want to focus on the, the last three questions. The, the, uh, the gentleman talked about the, the poorness of where his parents live and the poverty still in China. Uh, that's one of the issues why I think Stalin was so careful and uh, Xi Jinping will also be careful, not just their own personal standing and their survival, but also the fact that they, two countries, Russia after World War II, China in the last 30, 40 years, have done so much to build up the country, including the bridges, that, uh, <laughs> that it would be a crime to take any risk to have all that effort by so many people to be destroyed in war. Who knows if it might be nuclear war or not nuclear war? That we can't predict. But it, a, a war without nuclear weapons, with ordinary weapons of mass destruction, nuclear elements could still be absolutely devastating for any country which has seen itself build itself up over the last 30, 40 years. There are two questions about uh, democracy. Um, I think or the, the one about U.S.-Japan and U.S.-China. The difference is, of course, that Japan, though a very special kind because it's derived from Japanese history as well as an American-led constitution, uh, Japan was a democracy. So the idea that Japan and America, however much they were, uh, at each other's throats over e economic trade um, would actually fight, just didn't arise. And apart from anything else, Japan had no weapons, relatively speaking. So th I think there's a very, very big difference between US-Japan and US-China. Japan was a, uh, 
an ally of the United States. It had been brought into the modern world, the post-World War II modern world, uh, with, the, with the help of the United States, and had flourished because of uh, the United States' hegemony. So the idea that there would have been a war there uh, as compared with what might happen now, uh, they're two very different situations. Finally, um, would China be different if there was democracy? Of course it would. The attitude of the Americans towards China, if China was a democracy, however special a democracy with Chinese characteristics it would be, would of course be different. The Americans would be have totally different. This wouldn't mean to say, any more than it did with Japan, that China would be an easy country to live with. France has been an ally, as we British know, <laughs> to the Americans since the Revolutionary War. And do the Americans and the French get on all the time? No, of course they don't. So the Chinese would and Americans would not get on necessarily because both were democracies, but they wouldn't fight. So it would be different. Uh, some uh, difference of opinions. Okay, so how would a war play out? I would say, so I do a lot of writing on this, specifically looking at tendencies of the U.S. military and the Chinese military to ensure that any war that breaks out is short and at the lowest level of conflict as possible. The specifics of that war depends on the scenario. So I had an article in Foreign Affairs that looks specifically at a Korea contingency, Chinese plans, and in that case, I actually say it's best um, not to try to deter or fight the Chinese, but the Chinese are a benefit in that war, and we should welcome them into that war. But in other cases, like South China Sea, it could be a matter of days, just naval and air power. Or in another scenario, like a Taiwan scenario, could be greater. One of the things that determines that is the US ability to reassure China that our goals are limited. That's why I would argue against any sort of messing with domestic politics. Because the second the party thinks it's not just about a couple rocks out at sea, but the United States is trying to undermine their rule, then we might find ourselves in a, in a war that is at a higher level than we want. Just to agree with Professor McFarquhar, one of the things that I also talk a lot about is Xi Jinping and how to deter war. I think the number one thing that causes China not to fight is not fears of the costs of war but fear that you will not succeed. Um, so I try to tell people on the U.S. side, stop telling China, you know, with your fawn ops and things, you know, it'll be very costly for you to try to take Taiwan. Try to show them that militarily you will fail. So deterrence by denial versus deterrence by punishment. Why is it bad for China to be in charge? Well, first let me clarify, it's not bad for everyone. It's better for China. Um, there's probably a lot of other countries in the world that don't have great relations with the United States for which it's better for them. My perspective as an American is the benefits that I gain as an American in this system and, and internationally are always gonna be better with the US in charge versus another country. That being said, there are a few indicators that make us worried. One, no transparency, so we don't know. Um, China prefers its partners to be weak. The United States prefers its partners to be strong. Um, and China's willingness to use coercion to get what it wants um, has been an increasing trend that is um, troubling to the United States. When it comes to, you know, same mountain, two lions, man, there was this golden era of being a China specialist where China was reassuring smaller countries and, uh, you know, prioritizing good relations with great powers. None of us thought war was possible. We all thought this was going to go really well. But China's strategy changed. They tossed that idea. And they said, there cannot be two lions on this mountain. And that's what the United States is responding to. Is China saying, you know, US, you cannot 
be operating here and you cannot have influence here. Um, and so that's, that's one of the big problems is that you know the United States has come to terms with. I don't think if China was a democracy it would make any difference. Um, I think Chinese national interests are derived logically from their environment. Uh, China cares about South China Sea not because it's an autocracy, but because they would carry their way. Um, and uh, so I think it could actually be problematic, as we know democracies can be more belligerent in their earlier stages. A lot of times what the Chinese government is censoring is calls from their own people to use force in the scenarios that the party doesn't want to. Um, so I'm not sure democracy would, would help us. Um, and the last point I would just say is... In addition to this belief that interacting with China would make it a democracy, there was also this unspoken belief that China would learn that they're better off with the United States in charge. And I always thought that was just as naive as the idea that China was going to become a democracy. No one feels like they're better off with someone in charge. China doesn't feel that way. They're rational not to feel that way. Unfortunately, the U.S. has now overcorrected. And my main concern about U.S. policy is it seems that any increase in Chinese influence is now determined a threat to the United States. And if you're on the Chinese side, what are you going to do with that? It's no longer about behavior, it's about who China is. And that creates no incentives for responsible behavior, peaceful behavior. And so I understand the frustration on the Chinese side of it doesn't matter if we build AIAB or we build islands or we come to agreements with our neighbors, as long as Chinese influence is increasing, the US is going to see us as a threat. So that's definitely something um, I think the US narrative has to be clearer about is it's not about different political or economic systems. It's about types of behavior. And we need to support China, even when they're increasing influence at US expense, when they're doing so through institutional and peaceful means um, versus being against everything China does. Great. OK, I think they've answered all the questions. Uh, so, okay. No, great questions. And we would stay here the whole night if I were to respond to all of them. Let me take just a couple, OK? That, uh, uh, so on uh, Japan and the Japanese analogy, I think that's very worth studying. But I think uh, I agree with Rod on the differences. So the Chinese rightly point out that the likelihood that the Japanese example is appropriate for them or that the Americans hope that the Chinese would follow in the footsteps of Japan and uh, have a market economy and become part of the international economic system and then become a democracy and then take their place at the American table, the assigned place, they point out rightly, wait a minute, Japan was defeated in a war. Japan was occupied by your troops. You wrote the Japanese constitution. You continue to provide Japan's security blanket. This is slightly different, okay? So Lee Kuan Yew pointed this out, why this was not a very good analogy. I think that's right. On the war point, I, I uh, disagree, I think, more than I agree with Oriana. So let me see if I explain in my view. So uh, uh, you asked in the discussion, what, what, what does the Thucydidean dynamic have to do with it? So Thucydides explained, in this dangerous dynamic between the rising power and the ruling power, you see misperceptions mis uh, uh, magnified. So since I know what my adversary is doing, that is, he's trying to displace me everywhere, everything he does, I can interpret. And I interpret and over-interpret. I multiply miscalculations 
Because again, since I already have the storyline, when I see something happening, and I exaggerate the impact of third-party actions or accidents. So uh, I have a good chapter in the book on 1914 and World War I. The idea that the assassination of an archduke end up becoming a spark that forced choices upon parties that they wouldn't otherwise have been considering, in which one choice then interacted with other choices, at the end of which you got a war that burned down everybody's house in a way that nobody would have chosen at the end of the war if they had had a chance to choose over. So nobody thought they had made wise choices. Every one of the parties had lost more than they gained, is I think the analogy that seems to me to be powerful in this case. And I think, uh, therefore, if I try to imagine how a war would play out, and I have played this game, uh, the war, you know, uh, played war games, uh, versions of this at the Pentagon for, for some time, basically uh, the idea that the U.S. is going to suppress Chinese land-based missiles that are, will attack American carriers and other ships in the South China Sea if there, were, if there should be a war or in the space between uh, uh, China and uh, Taiwan, and that the Chinese are going to say this is a regional conflict seems to me to be insane. So it's insane as the air-sea battle proposition that says, I will first destroy your land-based missiles so that my carrier can move up close enough that my planes on my carrier can fly to bump you or other, I think, forget about it. So if I were playing, or when I played the Chinese hand, I do something to your homeland of equivalent proportions. And that's where cyber becomes very interesting. Just close down the whole electrical grid and see what happens, as a for, for example, or alternatively, take out satellites. So we could play this game you know, back and forth. But I'd I think- If you're on blue, I'd be on red, and as China, I would do things that, a little I different. I think the risks of escalations yeah. are substantial. On the two tigers in the mountain, or the two suns, I've been thinking about this, and it seems to me, actually, since we know a lot more about astronomy, than people who did when they talked about you can't have two sons. If I read my modern astronomy book today, the, 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 the cosmos is full of many suns. Many suns. So I'm not stuck by that, uh, that, by that analogy if we were to do our imagination. And finding on the international norms and spheres of influence, I think the American notion uh, that spheres of influence were somehow retired at the end of World War II or in the, at the end of the Cold War is an illusion. Uh, I think spheres of influence have always been asserted by great powers. Great powers do not like having adversaries on their border. They don't like adversaries in their adjacent seas. And they strive to do whatever they can to prevent that happening. I think that's exactly what you see with Russia as it becomes a strong power. That's exactly what you see with the US if we think about our space. And that's what you see with the Chinese. So I think we will end up having to get used to it. Thank you very much. There's, there's a, a, a certain way in which discussions like these are analogous to international politics. They can escalate. Uh, leading to fisticuffs, uh, they can people can get along, and then it's very boring. We've really struck the middle ground here. Lots of lots of disagreements, but constructive and stimulating and provocative. For that, I thank our three uh, speakers very much, and I thank all of you for joining us. Thank you so much.